What is up, Asymmetry? Man, we take a week off and you got to deliver when you come back. And um, we had the pleasure to sit down with now Tokutake, who is a young and upcoming ceramicist in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but his roots in bonsai uh, start in the motherland of, uh, of Japan. And it's always fascinating to see the journey that takes somebody to where they're at when we find them. Um, but now being a materials engineer um, and having an engineering background, it, 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 it was unbelievably enlightening to listen to him discuss the ceramic vessel the clay, the chemistry, the origin, the things that he looks for. I have spoken with a lot of ceramicists. I, I, I've really never heard anybody break it down quite like this. And, uh, and it was amazing. Um, if you don't know him, check out his wares on Bonsai Mirai's uh, web store, goods.bonsaimirai.com. Uh, and if you want to uh, reach out to now for some of his work or custom work, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can find uh, him because he is becoming quite prolific and quite well known. But um, for the time being, sit back, relax and enjoy uh, and prepare to have your mind blown and uh, have your impression of the ceramic vessel completely modified to a higher degree. Enjoy. Now, how you doing, man? Good. All right. You could join. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've been driving to and from Portland multiple times. Today. No, I hear you. Yeah. The, the, it's the hustle, the bonsai hustle. No, actually, it's the it's the parenting <laughs> hustle, right? Oh, I know it. My little one just started talking, which is kind of exciting. Ooh, what were yeah. the first words? Uh, it's moon, which is pretty nice, <laughs> I think. That's great. Now, is this, does she speak Japanese or English? We sh uh, we teach her three languages: um, English, Japanese, and Taiwanese. My my wife is from Taiwan, so very very cool. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Now, does your wife speak Japanese? No, she doesn't. Do you speak Taiwanese? I don't know. Okay, I all guess, right. I guess... <laughs> Getting wild. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. How old is your little girl now? Oh, um, she's like 15 months. Now. 15 months. Yeah, yeah. Just getting fired up, learning to talk. <clears throat> she's walking, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was in a pouch the I, last time I was there. That's right, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because to see um, you know, a living thing kind of become cognizant and, 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 and think for her own, you know, on her own. Is yeah. Kinda, yeah. Yeah, that is crazy. Now, did you say that your mother or father is American or are both of your parents Japanese? Uh, my my dad's American. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And uh and and you spent the majority of your childhood growing up in Japan? Yeah, yeah. Mhm. Mm and you were in and I'm just kind of retracing this because you know, the first time that we met and when we were talking about all of this stuff, I was like digesting, looking at all of your pots and like your world, which you have a pretty awesome backyard. Um, and so I want to make sure that I got it clear that you, you grew up near Obuse or in Obuse in Nagano. So um, my family lives in Yamanochi, which is like, it's like a 20 minute train ride from Obuse. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I say Obuse because it's, that's a very well-known place for bonsai folks. Right? Yeah, of course. So, Shinji Suzuki's yeah, yeah, I, facility. Yeah, I got a cool, really cool story for that. Um, I'll tell you at some point. I, I tell all the, the bonsai folks. Well, let's do it. That's, that's what we're here to do, man. I'm super excited oh, you're okay. willing to sit down with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll, yeah. My my grandfather did bonsai. Um, you know, when I was I was five, probably when he first taught me things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he passed away in in 2016, I think. And and I was I was pretty bummed out, obviously, because I, um, I, I had a lot in common with my my grandfather. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was we were hanging out at my grandma's house in in Yamanochi. And I, I asked her, like, is there, is there anywhere we can see bonsai in Nagano? And, and Nagano is kind of the boonies, right, Com- compared mm. to, like, Tokyo. Yeah, right, right. Everybody knows it's it because like, of the like Olympics, a, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And and when I was growing up, before the Shinkansen came in, which is, you know, now it takes, like, a couple hours to get to Nagano. It used to take, like, eight hours. You'd have to train, uh, you know, exchange on the local lines and whatnot. Right. But anyways... Um, she said that there's a bonsai museum um, over in in uh, Obuse, and I said no way. I, you know, I know I didn't know there was a, a bonsai museum in Obuse, and and she said, yeah, your 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 Jichan, your grandpa used to go over there, and he used to complain about the branches that like he would go over there and say that this branch needs to move this way, and and that that's all <laughs> wrong and whatnot. So I said, okay, I gotta go, I gotta go check out this museum. So. Um, my my wife and I take the train over the Obusa, and it's only like ten or fifteen minutes by, by train, and and we get off at the train station, and the the, the master there points us to the, uh, well, first of all, he says that the museum no longer exists, and we're, exists, and we're bummed out. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says you can go over there and knock on a door, and the guy who who lives there can 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 show you around. Um, so we did that, and then uh, this Japanese guy comes out, and uh, we have coffee and we talk, and he's like. So what brings you here? And I kind of tell him about my grandfather and all this. Um, and I ask him, I'm like, so, so who are you? And how do you have all these amazing trees? And, and I was so green at the time. Um, he's like really shocked and surprised. And he's like, Boku a famous Dayo. And, and <laughs> uh, you know, which is like, I, I, what are you talking about? I'm famous. And he points up at, at his like four or five, you know, Kokufu certificates up right. on the wall. Right. And I just feel like a total idiot. I'm like, oh, holy crap! And um, you know, I find out it's Shinji Suzuki, who's like this master of, of Japanese bonsai. Yeah. And that was kind of how I stumbled um, into this world. I think. Yeah, that that kind of started a lot. So, <clears throat> at that time, the museum that was uh, in tandem with the hotel had closed down, and it was, and he he had moved across the street to his own facility. Is that is that when you first found him this was uh uh 2016 yeah okay Mm yeah yeah that was an incredible facility that they had with the hotel and the museum and that whole space but uh i i don't know what happened i don't know why that that closed i think i think he was it was my understanding it wasn't he wasn't connected to it beyond just curating the collection and the space that the bonsai existed in but he seemed to land on his feet after that. <laughs> you know, he has like yeah, one of yeah. the most amazing facilities in in the world for bonsai, uh, and that was your uh, introduction to it, I guess. Yeah, and I like that story because it reminds me of my my grandfather. Because um, remember, I said at the beginning that he used to go there to, to complain right. about the such and, such, and it's like that's exactly like my my grandfather. He, he 
he was a nice chill dude but um very opinionated <laughs> um, yeah you, you know in a cool way you know so oh very good yeah so so yeah, but <clears throat> go ahead go ahead i'm sorry well, i was gonna say I'm like just... uh um so, so shinji suzuki he you know by name um suggested i come and join bsop he, he gave me like a stack of books in keenbone magazines and it's like you know go meet matt real go meet michael hagedorn go check this out and so a couple months later i met lee Cheadle and mm. off, you know off to the races yeah 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 so when did you come when did you move to the united states or did you come back and forth to the united states oh, yeah yeah i mean i went every year for summer vacations and whatnot and i still have family everywhere but um around around middle school mm -hmm. yeah and where did you come where, where where was the the place to be when you were in the oh. united states uh so we lived in the inland empire so i you know i was born in los angeles and then we ended up settling in riverside mm -hmm. uh, which is like an hour east of la but uh, you know i went to college in la and i went to grad school in la so I, I i like to call la home i guess yeah yeah and and what brought you to portland then so did shinji suzuki telling you to go see michael hagedorn and matt real and bsop bring you here how'd you how'd you end up in portland or well, I was already I was already in Portland at that at that time. Um, I came for work, so mm -hmm. I still yeah I still have a day job. I uh, <laughs> do engineering work. Yeah, currently so, you have a day job. Ceramics might might oh, take I, over. Yeah, that's my dream, man. That's my dream. Well, it's um, probably within striking yeah. distance. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how much bonsai ceramics provide people with a, you know. A huge monetary living but certainly if you love to do it there's probably a way to make it work yeah yeah absolutely I, I most of the time i feel you know kind of like i'm new to the the poker game just kind of filling things out mm. um I, I do come from a different world in the sense because it's kind of a, a very sciencey background you know I, I don't have any artistic training um I think that does kind of influence a lot of what I do and the kind of way I approach bonsai pot making. When you say a sciencey background, <clears throat> what 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 do you mean? What do you do? What's your education in? Oh, uh, mechanical engineering and material science. So, mm -hmm. um, actually, I did study ceramics in a sense, right? Um, materials research. Yeah. C certainly not pottery and utilitarian objects, but um you know how clays work and how ceramics work and hmm. how how they fire and how you can make them it's it, so i guess there's a lot of overlap but certainly not it, it's not artsy in a, in any any sense yeah it was more yeah. more about the material characteristics and the tolerances and all that stuff kind of on yeah, the exactly. analytic side of things so so you're you're already in portland you go to college and grad school in Southern California. You're in Portland for work. You're in Nagano, Obuse. You go see Shinji Suzuki. Who are you? I'm famous. You should go, go to, go, go to, go to BSOP and talk to these people. Uh, and, uh, and then you came back and then, I mean, when did you start making bonsai pots? Well, I left out. I was I, I've been doing pottery for for ten years, so five years before Suzuki. Um, I, when I was a grad student in LA, my uh, girlfriend at the time said we should take a pottery class together. So um, 
by the way, if you're if you're you're, if you're single, that's a great way to meet somebody. So <laughs> I ended up marrying her. <laughs> that's my wife, Mary. <laughs> nice. Um, but but anyway, yeah, I fell in love with it immediately. Uh, pretty much the first class, I was like, this is this is awesome. Um, I think we bought a we bought a pottery wheel a couple of months later. Set up a little studio in her parents' garage in L.A. Um, and so I, yeah, I, every, when we moved up to Portland, I was still doing pottery. And so when I met Shunji Suzuki, I was not a bonsai potter, but I was a potter. Um, and then I think I think it was joining BSOP, and I saw the need for for pots. I think that's what really got me making pots. And and my bonsai collection was growing, my personal collection. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, then I got kind of serious, and I went off the deep end. And I then I. You know, I was making, I made a pilgrimage to Tokonama. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not, Japan's a small country. You know, you go to Nagano and then to go to Tokonama, it's only, what, another three-hour train ride. Right. Um, right. So it's not, it's not too crazy. Anyone can go to, to Tokonama, but that was something I wanted to do. So we went, uh, I think it was 2018. Um, so, the, and, and so that, that kind of cemented the, the direction I was going that I would, that I would focus on bonsai pottery and not just pottery. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And when you went to Tokonome, what, what was your impression from what you knew of ceramics in the, the time that you'd been taking ceramic classes and, and working in your garage in, in Southern California to going to kind of this Mecca uh, did, did that, ch- I mean, I'm not saying you had like some spirit, spiritual experience or anything like that. Like, I don't expect it to be that profound, but, but what was your observation or feeling in Tokonami? Cause I've been to Tokonami as well. It's an interesting place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I guess in the Japanese psyche, Tokonami, it's not a bonsai town, right? Right. Um, it, it, in America, the only reason we even know Tokonami is because of the, the potting, um, but uh, in Japan, it's more of a tea place, right? It's a tourist town. You 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 take a day trip there from Nagoya and and buy tea stuff and come back. Um, but I yeah, I went there to. I really like the the history aspect of it. Um, I'm sure you noticed all the kilns. So the the um, uh, you know you can see all the 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 chimney stacks. You just walk around and it's potters everywhere, right? Just dense dense roads of potters. Right. Um, but at that time, I was I re- I really wanted to seek out and meet uh, bonsai potters, um, so I you know I was able to meet a, a handful of those those folk, mm-hmm. uh, a good cross section of them actually people who do like production work and people who do like custom um, only you know large pots for big shows mm-hmm. um, like Hakuzan. Um, but yeah, I, I was blown away. I guess is the way to the way to put it. At that point, I realized like this is what I need to be doing. Cause it, it, it's a very technical way to make pots. Um, it's a very precise way to make pots. It's, um, at, I felt it was for, for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and do you, did you connect in, you know, like you and I have talked and you've kind of said, listen, the traditional kind of the traditional forms of ceramics and, and bone size ceramics is kind of where you orient. Um, do you think that that your preference for that uh, was established by your initial introduction to bonsai or your um, obvious, you know, sort of growth and development in Japan or by some of the, the experiences around tokoname? 
Uh, like what what created your direction and path and choice to move in the traditional direction of bone size ceramics yeah um that's a good question i i think uh i i i, I do treat it more as a as a craft and you know i was still learning how to make bonsai pots and uh, if you think about it the simplest bonsai pot you can make is like a cylinder that you you stretch out into an oval and so for a while i was just making cylinders no rims no fancy feet, um, you know, pretty much the bare bones bonsai pot. Um, and, and that was really hard. It's really hard to make a, a, a perfect bonsai pot, uh, just blank oval. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I realized that I, you know, I wasn't ready to do all this crazy fancy uh, feet work and delicate rims and all that. Um, so I, and I still feel, feel like I'm at a point where I need to really get the craft down mm -hmm. um, make sure i i don't i don't want any uneven walls and no warping um and and i think uh just focusing on the simple before you can you know innovate i think yeah yeah that makes sense to me it makes a lot well i mean it's it's kind of the natural progression of things though isn't it like you have to be able to make perfect before you can make an intentional imperfect. You've got to be able to make the fundamental forms before you can make your own forms. Like it seems like there is a a natural hierarchy and way in which things kind of progress in the evolution of a of a you know, craft to art kind of uh, narrative arc, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, um, go ahead. Yeah. Um, when you do, when you, when you do pottery, you, you learn things, uh, you learn to see pots. And, um, I was looking around at, at, at pots on the landscape and, uh, you know, I didn't like all the necessary ornaments and crazy glazes and all that. So part of it was a rejection of that, that I, I thought that, you know, it was, just to have a nice, nicely made cylinder is enough. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. If you can, uh, if you can make a, a cylinder nice, a nice cylinder and apply to glaze correctly and fire it right. How is that not enough? You know, and, and nature takes care of the rest. If the flame hits it just right, um, I play. I like to play with the flame and the, the you know, the the, the 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 unpredictability of of that aspect. And I think that's beautiful. I don't think you need a crazy foot or a a, a texture. You know, why why are we faking rocks and tree textures? Uh, I don't think that's necessary. So mm -hmm. I think that that's kind of where I was coming from in, in the simplicity. I think I'll stay that way, at least for now. You can ask me again in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure, I'm sure I will be asking you in a few, a few years. I'll be interested to see if that changes or maybe you even double down on that. Uh, but but um, <clears throat> as a ceramicist, when you're making forms for bonsai, you know, and, and, and talking about the feet and the rim and some of these accoutrements or, or bells and whistles to the fundamental form, do you find those things to be valuable? Like when you look at the, at the, the plethora of, of components that go into uh, a lot of the Japanese ceramics, even, I mean, those, those details exist. And, 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 uh, and do, you, do you like that or do you feel like you even want to strip it down more? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I, I really admire the Chinese potters, like the 
the ancient masters, you know, who are actually the who the Japanese potters are inspired by, right? The original Chinese artists, and they were doing crazy stuff, right? Really, really uh, sharp corners and cloud feet and all that jazz. That's that's a good question. I I I actually I do uh, implement cloud feet sometimes, and and um, but it's still simple, right? They're not doing like you know, like some some people do crystalline glazes, but especially in the you know, it's if it's unglazed, it's it still looks simple. You can have um, a, a lotus pot with like you know twenty four lobes, but it still looks simple when it's unglazed um, and it's bare. Um, but it doesn't have like crazy feet. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got to think about that one. No, that's fair. Do you have a preference between making an unglazed or a glazed container? I think I would like to do unglazed more, but I feel limited by what's available in the U.S. Um, you know, Tokonama is famous for its clay, just like other uh, pottery sites in Japan. And I, I, when I went to Tokonama, I was able to see all their, the different kinds of clay they have and how they behave. Um, and then when I came back to the U.S., I... I, I realize just how little we have, right? You, you go to the, the pottery store and they have um, maybe a dozen kinds of clay, right? And it's like white or brown and nothing in between. And I, and I'm, I suspect you go to any pottery store in the U.S. And, and they all contain very similar ingredients. There's like, you know, a mine in Florida that produces this ingredient and a mine in South Dakota makes this ingredient. And so everyone's clay looks identical. Um, I think that's that's one part reason I don't do more unglazed. I would like to do more more unglazed, but um, and so I'm working on that right now. But so I, so for the time being, that's why I do a lot of glazed work. Is I feel like I don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. But I, I do enjoy I do enjoy the glazed work. Um, and going back to the sciency aspect, you know, you gotta you gotta formulate the glazes and all that. And I do enjoy that. So. I'm not complaining, but how do you even begin? How do you even begin with the chemistry of glazes and like figuring out? I, I, I mean, obviously, I would assume you could go to a ceramic store and they would sell glaze, premixed glazes, and but, but how do you start making your own glaze? Yeah, I think most <laughs> most potters start with like the the dark web of of trafficked gra- glazes. Um, <laughs> You, you can you can type in glaze recipes on the website and uh, it's sort of a gamble because you you'll mix it up and you got to kind of trust whoever made it that it would perform correctly. A lot of the times it'll run off the pot right and your pot stick stuck to the shelf. Um, so it does take. I think that's how everyone starts. Either that or you take a class and someone shows you step by step how to formulate a glaze. But at least for me, I was trafficking in these these uh, glaze recipes and so you try it. Um, it, it, after a, f- a few years, you figure out how to modify it to your liking. Uh, so you can take any any shiny glaze that looks cheap and turn it into a bonsai glaze. You can mat it. Um, you can add texture to it. So like, you know, a koyo pot that's green and has the little blue dots in it. You can you can replicate that effect, or you can um, have it so that it breaks brown on the edges or whatever you want. And but that just takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of reading. I, I don't think you need a degree in chemistry, but uh, it, it is something like chemistry. It, 
I think anyone can do it. It's just, it's mostly trial and error anyway. It's all empirical. It's not like anyone knows. Um, and, 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 and uh, yeah, it, it's forgiving. It's forgiving. I think, you know, it, it's not like you have to have within 1% of, of such and such chemical to look right. You, you might try 5% of copper at, at first and, um, it'll look halfway decent. And then you just try 4% next time and you go, oh, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, every one of my firings, I have a couple dozen, uh, glaze tiles in it, test tiles. Um, it doesn't cost anything to throw them in there. And by now I must have like 300, uh, or so glazes to choose from. Uh, but I don't think that's unusual. I think, I think all potters must have several hundred glazes. But, you know, you whittle it down to the few dozen that work for bonsai. And, and I think when I, when I really get into production, I'll probably whittle that down further until, you know, only a dozen. So, like, a really good blue, a really good green, a really good yellow, you know. Mm -hmm. so, but I, I guess I have freedom because I'm sort of a new potter. I can, I can play around with these things and see what works. Yeah, you don't have a lot of pressure on you to be like creating consistency. Everybody's just like, "Oh, now like, this is amazing," <laughs> and that's like, that's like good enough. But that's a that's that first generation vibe of of your work right now. Is it is it is there's there's such an interesting when you see ceramicists that have a, a talent for ceramics, their their first generation of work is is always very special because it's a little you know it's it's the experimental phase things aren't quite worked out like i have a few uh sarah rayner pots that were some of her mm -hmm. early pots and it's like yeah I, I i was at her studio several years ago and and i was like what's this and she's like oh don't even show me that that's one of my early pieces Ugh, it's so embarrassing <laughs> and i was like i'll take yeah, it yeah. I want, you know because like you don't get that back you don't get that you don't yeah. get that yeah. that 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 learning curve back where you see all of that um hunger and in raw you know sort of unrefined um attempt and that's that's really valuable aesthetically that's very mm -hmm. valuable but then you get into really like you're saying you know several hundred glazes and you're going to whittle it down to 12 to 15 well there's probably a lot of glazes in those several hundreds that are pretty awesome you know so like when yeah, you when yeah. once a ceramicist starts to refine their process and stuff there is a there is a uh, a sadness a feeling of loss you know like uh, at, at least from uh, as a bone type professional looking at the process and there's no it's just it'd, it'd be the same as you know the way that i handle trees obviously you try a lot of things and a few things work really well and you kind of move in that direction that works well it it, it only makes sense but also there's like some of those outliers that still had merit and and some possibilities and potential that that will continue to be a product of of sort of ignorance or uh you know sort of jubilation of the the youthful endeavor yeah. of of exploration yeah and and i get reminded of those those kind of happy accidents often like people will uh, email me a picture of some pot i made three years ago and i'm like holy crap i forgot about that glaze it's pretty nice and you know, at the time I thought it was trash and he puts a tree in it and now it looks amazing. Right. And now it comes back into my repertoire. So that does happen. That's um, good. That's good. Yeah. That's good that you're open to it. But I wouldn't say, I, I, I do want to, um, you know, in terms of simplifying things and, and your, your uh, desire to simplify things, you do have complex glazes or at least ceramics that have complex glaze. Um, 
approaches to them. Um, I have a Japanese maple in one of your, I would say, more sort of avant-garde blue glaze combinations that has some patterns in it and some uh, nuance to it. And then the last firing that we got ceramics from you had, I, I would say, some really interesting stuff that was definitely not simple. Huh. I, but I didn't do it. I didn't put those patterns on there. The, the, the kiln did it. When it, went into the, when it went into the kiln, it was one glaze. It's very simple. It's, it's no more difficult than any a white pot. It could have been unglazed for, for the flame did it. Um, and, and, so, and so that in that sense, I, I, I still feel it's simple. Interesting. So, I didn't sit there and brush on red patches. I didn't sit there and put iron oxide into the crevices. Um, you know, I, the, the kiln does it. Now, are you firing gas electric or, or wood? Uh, it's gas. Okay. It's gas. Um, actually, I, yeah, since the last time you were here, we're, we're, we're really making a move to kind of scale up. Um, so I, we bought a new kiln, you know, so I can, at least my goal yet by the end of the year is to have, uh, you know, maybe like three times the output. Nice. Um, yeah. But it, that'll also be gas. Uh, it has to be gas to have these kind of cool glaze effects. Um, with, with electric, you don't get any of that interaction with the atmosphere. So mm -hmm. it has to be gas. This is like oxidation and reduction is what you're... Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, and cer certain elements, only certain elements react with the atmosphere. So a, a cobalt, like those those really bright blue Canton blue pots, you know, um, those don't really react with, with oxidation or reduction. Um, but a copper will turn bright red if the flame hits it. And so I've been implementing a lot of copper glazes. Um, yeah. I... But then when you start to talk about firing pots, now you have a kiln, you're, you just invested in a new kiln, and you got to know that kiln, right? You have to know where to put that pot to have that reaction. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like learning to drive stick shift, you know, you, you figure out the <laughs> clutch, you figure out, you figure out a little nuances of your kiln. Yeah. Um, we actually designed this new kiln, uh, to behave like my current kiln. Um, so, you know, you can just, you can design where to place the burners and I basically optimized it so that, you know, I'll get maximum flame effects. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited to see the, the kind of charred crap that comes out of it <laughs> yes yes when are you firing in it for the first time uh so probably um three three months from now is probably okay. when the, the first firing yeah are you making are you making work right now or are you constantly making work or do you have seasons yeah for i'm making work? constant no i i'm constantly making work mm -hmm. uh because i have a day job it you know i'm limited to like maybe three or four hours a day and then the weekends um and right now i'm just catching up on a lot of commissions yeah. Um, you know, and I know I have a love rate relationship with commissions. Um, you know, sometimes you get some cool ideas from commissions, but right now I'm just doing a bunch of ovals and, and there's nothing wrong with ovals, but you know, it's not what I want to do at this time, but you, you got to do it. I yeah. feel like a lot of the ceramicists that we work with as, as they become more established tend to back away from commissions. And, uh, yeah. I, I don't know what that's like as a ceramicist, you know, I, <clears throat> I have no clue what that feels like for somebody to say, can you make me a, a pot that looks like, you know, this, that, and the other. I, 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 I hear some ceramicists say, you know, the clay kind of tells you what 
kind of pod it's going to be. I don't know what that means. Uh, and, it, and it really is a mystery to me to, to have to field a, a request to create a pot that looks just so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it can be restricting sometimes because a lot of times people want a pot that looks like identical to something in my catalog, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I really can't give you that exact same pot. And maybe they're surprised or disappointed by what they actually get. Um, yeah, but I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I do like commissions. I, I, I think I'll always do commissions. Um, I'm surprised by what people want. I, and I learned from that. I, I, I didn't used to do lotuses, but people were asking me for lotuses. So then I learned to do lotuses and now it's a regular part of my, my repertoire. Right. Um, people recently have been asking me to do nambans, which I have no interest in doing, but, um, yeah, I've been practicing those. Mm-hmm. Boy, it feels like there's an awful lot of people making non-bonds for somebody to ask you and your skill set to make a non-bond. Not like it. Not like that's a derogatory in any way, shape, or form. I think to make a great non-bond, yeah. you've got to be really talented uh, and have mastered the perfect circle first. But um, I don't know. I would take a lotus or a rectangle from you any day over a non-bond. You know, like yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh, I, I said I was like I. I I don't know what why you're asking me. I don't do nonbons, but okay, I'll do a nonbon. <laughs> but okay. really, the nonbon is the most challenging pot um, to make for a potter. Um, to 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 do a nonbon correctly, you have to sit there all day and make fifty of them, and maybe only one of them will have that you know that nice wabi feel to it. When you're a potter, you can look at a pot and and you you can understand how it was made. Um, so when I look at a nambon, and I think when any potter looks at a nambon, you can see the throwing lines, and you know you know exactly how it was made. You can see how they pulled out the rim. You can tell, uh, you know, if the rim was intentionally made uneven or if it was made uneven during the throwing process. You can tell if they put their fingers in it intentionally to give it that, you know, quote unquote nambon look. Um, and, and so when I look at one of those nonbons, to me, I, I just, I just, I can, I can tear it apart and it looks quote unquote fake. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I think the wrong way to make a nonbon is to, to make something you see in a book. So you, you, you throw a circle um, that's roughly nonbon ish, and then uh, you make the, the, the walls uneven intentionally. And then you, you, maybe you add a little, a nick in the rim to give it that, that kind of bent look. Um, and so then you, you put it down and maybe you fire it. And, uh, I think the finished product kind of looks a little too forced to mm-hmm. me. It looks maybe fake is the a harsh word, but the, you know, the original non-bonds were not intended to be bonsai vessels. They were, you know, lids for cooking vessels and they were made by some probably poor potter who was making 200 of them in a day, you know, and, and, and the ones that look all crazy and wobby. Are probably that 201 that he was he made that day, um, so it has all that character of, you know, some guy who's probably really tired making making pots, making lids for pots, pumping so, them out, so yeah, fatigued. Uh, he's you know ready to go yeah, home. Exactly. Yeah. So so I think I think the only way to make a real good nambon is exactly that to sit there with a giant pile of clay, pound out 50 of them, and and. By the 50th one, your fingers are super tired and maybe your wrists are tired and your elbows are tired. 
and you get lazy and so the rim becomes really uneven and then you cut it off the bat and you put the you put the pot down and maybe you do it too forcefully and the rim collapses then you know you you put it up on the shelf and maybe you hit the edge of the shelf and so the rim gets kind of bent in um then you then you fire it and the flame um flame hitting the pot is not a desirable aspect traditionally but you know maybe you put it in some terrible place of the kiln because you don't care about this shitty pot um then it comes out and it looks gorgeous because it's charred and it's <laughs> dented and and that's how you make a nambon and that's why it's so damn hard to make a good one and I, i've never seen a really good nambon and i certainly can't do it so huh. have you had the key the, have you handled have you handled uh, you, you know these these uh cooking vessel or I, I know they were also like storage containers measuring devices you, you know like the lids rice sake uh you know skimono all that stuff like <clears throat> you can see you can see some of them are designed to pour you know they have like a pour lip on them uh, like they, they, there's all kinds of different purposes that these things satisfied as far as a cover on bigger vessels and and suddenly they've been retrofitted uh to plant a tree in by having archaic holes drilled in them in them and yep yep um but you've i'm assuming you've handled them and you've seen these that things that were never intended to be bonsai ceramics yeah yeah it's a different um, experience it is yeah and they're primitive um the, the clay is of a low grade it's got chunks in it it's got things chipping off of it mm -hmm. um, they're generally low fired at least not by modern standards um and you, they're so they feel light and clunky and that's that's in the kanji right this the southern uh rough or whatever um it was always it was always barbarian seemed to be a word that was like associated with non-bond like barbarian uh, uh connotation or something like that like just um this real rough, rugged kind of uh, uh, intention. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, that's but um, so that's why. Yeah, I, I do think that like maybe only those original nambans, the real deal, um, count that that are real nambans. The rest are imitations. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it kind of. I think about like because I I did study like you know Japanese tea culture, um, all that tea stuff that was made in Japan, all that was imitations too, right? The, the original, the original real tea stuff was um, the weird wabi stuff that was imported from China and Korea. Um, everything else after that is a, is a, is a terrible copy. Hmm. You know, we, we put it in a museum today, but it's an imitation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, when you look at that, like uh, we talked with Thor Holvilla, who's a, a Swedish ceramicist that went and um, spent a few months in uh, Tokoname working at a few different uh, ceramicist shops and kilns. And, uh, and he really spoke to the fact that like in Tokoname, they were making utilitarian goods and yep. and there wasn't a necessity or as much demand and they had to kind of about face and find a new way to survive. And then suddenly, you know, mimicking the shapes of the antique Chinese bonsai uh, ceramics became the way that Tokoname s survived, right? And, and yeah. so it's interesting when you, and he was saying, you know, they use a really fast drying clay 
um, which which has a has a different sort of working methodology, and it was fascinating to get that kind of background from Thor, just because nobody had ever broken it down to me, and I didn't have that background of tokenama, and you're calling it more or less sort of people go there for the tea culture of of tokenama uh, as much as anything else. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, tokenama exists because it sits on a hill of clay uh, right next to the ocean. Um, and so, you know, since ancient times, that was a convenient place to, to make pottery. And around the turn of the century, they were making clay pipes. Uh, so shochu bottles are very famous. Right. Uh, I'm sure you saw the, the walkway that was lined with shochu bottles. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then during World War II, they were making electrical insulators and toilet bowls. Um, yeah, and so, you go to Tokonami today and you would think it's a tea town because uh, most most pottery studios are like a two-story old Japanese house and the, the potter lives on the second floor and he has a little shop on the first floor. Uh, and it's, you you know, if you're going there to, to see bonsai pots, you'll be disappointed because it's it's mostly chawan and um, rice bowls and plates and stuff like that. You have to ask them to see the bonsai pots. I mean, unless you go to, unless you go, unless you go to like a, you know, um, like a Yamaaki or something like that, you know, a, a big manufacturer where it's very obvious. But um, I, I like a lot of the, uh, the kind of custom people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned Kakuzan at the beginning. He, he only does kind of made to order pots. Um, and, and he's he's one of the few people who are still doing large scale uh, pots, like the kind of stuff you'll see at the Kokufu. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he does hand building, but he still uses you know these giant molds. And that was that was really inspirational to see him work a mold. Yeah, that had I think that had an impact on me. And 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 when you one one of the things that always is impressive to me when you see a master craftsman is is just the the, the fluency and proficiency of the way that the way that the medium is handled the way that the tools are utilized you know the 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 manner in which the technique is is similar to walking you know it's just like pretty impressive to watch a especially i think a japanese shokunin really has that kind of next level of of capacity because there's been such a disciplined practice for so long yeah, I'm glad you you used that that word, the shokunin. It has you know it has a very uh, specific meaning to to Japanese people, um, and I I I think most Japanese people the the, the way they see shokunins is, is on TV. I, I don't know if you watched much Japanese TV when you lived in Japan. Just daytime TV when we were eating lunch. I got a what warai tomo the 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 lunchtime show with uh, Tamori San. As the, oh, okay. yeah. yeah, I mean, Tom Mori is that, very, guy, that dude is still, he's still doing shows. Still he's crushing. Like, he's got to be like 150. He's but. like, he's never going to, he's never going to stop. He's <laughs> never going to die. He's like, uh, he, he's amazing. And he's still hilarious. Yeah. The guy's, he's, he's hilarious. Yeah. He's mummified by cigarettes or something. Mm. I don't know. Cigarettes and sake. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, um, I think you watch any Japanese show long enough and eventually they'll, they'll have a profile on some random shokunin. Uh, and, and it doesn't have to be what we in the West would call an art. You know, it'll be like a, like a candle maker or a, a, a you know, a screen door repair dude mm-hmm. or, or a wood carver or an ink maker. Um, but, but 
but the one thing they have in common is that they just they do their job really well and they they get better and better at it and um it, it may be humble but i always looked up to that sort of lifestyle like mm-hmm. you know if i was a candle maker and i just sold candles the rest of my life but i i loved what i did and i did it well then i think that's a, a good life yeah i think um, there's a real i think there's a real simple honesty to it and uh I think there's a simple honesty. I was always impressed by the fact that as an apprentice, you don't have a choice. You show up when you're supposed to show up. You go home when you're you're you, after you're told to go home, uh, not when you're told to go home. But I I think like that that aspect of living, you know, nobody was telling Mr. Kamur to show up every day. And and I think contrary to a lot of bonsai professionals, Mr. Kamura showed up every day, every day. He didn't he didn't lean on his apprentices to do the work. He was in the workshop with us. And I really, I really respected that. That was very valuable to me because I think there is like a, a business aspect to bonsai where a lot of bonsai professionals, when they achieve sort of a, a certain stature in the, in the professional community, <clears throat> they kind of leave the work to their apprentices and then they're out gallivanting around being you know, being whatever famous or whatever you, they want to call themselves. So it's a, it's a different, um, different mentality. And that really, I think that mentality from my perspective with Mr. Kimura, although there obviously are limitations that every individual has to how far they can take their craft. Um, that was definitely, I think his most empowering characteristic, you know, beyond all of his engineering and creativity and whatnot. I, I just think it was the fact that he showed up every day. He was there every day. You know, and and, and uh, I, I've talked with a lot of artists on the podcast of different mediums doing different things, and the biggest thing that I take from it is is that you have to show up. You just got to show up. That's <laughs> yeah. like that's like so, three quarters of the battle. I, I one thing I use at my, my I think about at my work is if you're if you're not good at something, at, you know, at least show up and be reliable. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah right. even, even if you even if you suck at it, you show up on time. You get you know people respect that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, you've invested in a bigger kiln and an expanded kiln. Uh, you're increasing your capacity with a desire to, to continue moving forward. It sounds to me like we're going to see a lot more of your work in the future. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I, I, I do want to sort of follow that tokonami model. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that there's there, we're lacking stuff in that space in, in this country. Mm-hmm. We have you know beautiful art pieces, crappy imported slipcast stuff, and nothing in between. It seems like yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's somewhere I think I want to fill. Um, yeah, and that's not to say it won't be beautiful, show-worthy pots. Um, I, I I I think I'm already starting to make pots that are rivaling, the, you know, the quality of a tokonami. They're getting, you know, almost free of warps and I, and the wall thickness is approaching that perfection, you know? So I'm just going to keep, keep at it and, uh, we'll see where, we'll see where I go. Yeah. Now, one of the really interesting things and, and one of the tangents that I wanted to talk to you about, and you kind of, you kind of started with it, but I want to circle back to it is, is quality of clay and and you had shown me what i would perceive to be a rock uh that you had collected in southern oregon that was actually uh clay and you're like no that's you can't go dig the sloppy soupy clay out of your backyard and make a a a good pot with it you've got to find 
I, I mean, it looked like an aggregate rock to me. It looked like a, a stone, and then you had a tumbler, and you tumbled it and, until it was pulverized, and then you, and then you had to uh, go through the process of turning that into a workable clay. Is this something that also uh, motivates you to be finding your own clay, processing your own clay, and, and kind of uh, cutting out that limitation of not having accessibility to a high quality clay? Yeah, I mean, if 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 we lived in Japan, it's possible to go up into the mountains and, and dig at the pick at the hillside and find soft workable clay. It's possible. Um, and I imagine there's probably a place or two in the US where there is soft workable clay. Um, the, the key thing is having the ratio of alumina to silica in your clay. Uh, a lot of the, the clay you find in like the Southwest and riverbeds, uh, the, the alumina content isn't high enough. Uh, which is why they tend to do the low fire terracotta type work. Mm. If you were to fire one of those pots to, uh, you know, cone six, cone ten, and we can talk about cones, um, it would just it would just melt into a puddle. It really will. It'll it'll turn into a bubbly puddle. Um, so the the key thing is, can you find clay uh, with a high enough alumina content uh, that'll 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 make a strong frost proof pot? Um, and so that that alumina is only found in, in certain places, at least in Oregon. Oregon's very young, geologically speaking. Um, so uh, at least in Oregon, our alumina comes in this sort of rock-like mi mineral called kaolinite. Um, so that needs to be ground down. Um, maybe in Yixing, it comes uh, mixed in little veins, and, and so they pick at that, and they can fire that. But they still, they still blend it with kaolinite from the mountain, and they still blend it with kaolinite in Tokonama, and they still blend it in bizen. Um, so there's some science to it, and everybody knows that you need to you need to blend in that that alumina content. Hmm. So yeah, how, how do that, you that's know? That's the part I like. Yeah. How, but how do you how know? Do you know? <laughs> how do you know? How do you know the alumina content? How are? I mean, you're a materials engineer, so this is more intuitive to you than it would be to a normal individual. Which is always funny the unique skill set that people have when they get into some <laughs> obscure endeavor, like. Oh, I'm a materials engineer, so I just happen to know the alumina to silica, you know, proportion. But how do you know? How do you find that out? Well, with testing, with testing. I think uh, since the dawn of time, we just kind of fiddle around with things. And some by accident, some Chinese guy found this white mineral up in the mountain, and he tried to fire it, and he realized it doesn't melt. He said, "Oh, what if I blend this with this soft river stuff that melts too early?" And bingo, you know, he figured out how to make porcelain. Mm. Um, it was just trial and error. And so even when I was fiddling around with different mines in, in Southern Oregon, I was bringing home these garbage bags filled with different kinds of rock. I didn't know what worked yet. I was grinding down those little samples, making little tiles, blending them to see how to get the maturation to be right at cone 10, right at cone six. Um, and it, it's, it's empirical, it's, it's trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, if you had, if you had a lab like at a, an actual processing company, you could do chemical analysis and figure out the exact percentages. Hmm. I, I know the percentages because I know from trial and error what it does. Um, yeah. So when you look at, and I don't, I don't know how much time you've spent with antique Chinese pots, but I'm assuming you've handled them and seen them and understand at least, uh, you know, uh, uh, about the clay. But one of the things that was always communicated to me is you know uh uday and and murasaki uh murasaki uday pots 
were kind of like this prized limited resource in China that doesn't exist anymore. That that the clay that made a lot of the really high level antique Chinese pots can't be duplicated and doesn't even exist in China anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, it's interesting. If uh, uh each clay is is unique. It, there's no way to copy a Chinese clay. I I I could take all the available minerals in the United States and North America and blend them and I could never approach a Yixing clay exactly. I could get it to be chemically exact and and the the, the chemical compositions are published. It's it's not hard to find exactly what's in a Yixing pot. But you go in a lab and you blend it to to match exactly the iron content, exactly the alumina content and it's going to look like trash. Mm-hmm. Um because it's there's 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 hundreds of types of clay mineral and they all behave differently. Um, you take two two different clays and they both have ten percent iron and you expect them to turn the same shade of brown, but they don't. Um, and so that's 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 part of what makes the clay a, a unique kind of you know fingerprint for the artist. And, and if I can get my my Oregon clay thing going in, in any sort of high you know quantity, I hope that that'll kind of be something that I can, you know, rest, rest on and say, that's a, that's a Tokutake pot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so fascinating to me. I mean, that, that, that piece alone is really fascinating to me. Um, and, and, and seemingly appropriate, right? It's like a New York bagel, like, uh, the, you know, they, they say it's like the water in New York. So then there's like places outside of New York that like, have duplicated the water and and add all the mineral content and the bagel still doesn't taste the same you know like it's the exact yeah. same it's the ex- exact same thing that you're talking about right. you, you can't yeah so that pot's probably not going to come back ever it's it may be it may you can probably mimic it you can kind of get the same color but you it'll never be the same mm-hmm. it's just not you need millions of years to create these chemicals these compounds yeah so, so, so or yeah, go ahead. Are 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 you motivated? I mean, are you motivated to be scouring, uh, uh you know, the the continent or or North America or the western Western United States or the state of Oregon, right? Or even the 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 Southern Oregon region? Are you motivated to really dig deep to find, uh? sort of a, a a a portfolio of bodies of clay or are you just trying to find one that you can play with and have fun with like what does that look like for you i i yeah i imagine there's there's going to be variety even within oregon uh it it, it took about a year of tinkering around just to get the first clay body working uh blending it correctly uh, oregon clay by the way we're very very fortunate to have a clay source, right? Um, we have a lot of volcanic activity, mm-hmm. uh, which leads to a lot of basalt, and it's the basalt weathering that you get these these critical compounds you need to make high fire pottery like alumina. Um, so we, we're very lucky to even have some sources of that. Uh, we're lucky that it's high in iron, so it's very similar to Yishin clay in that respect. And we're, we're also really lucky that it's plastic. So. Um, when it comes out of the ground, it's actually malleable. A lot of clays are not, are, are too short to work with. But um, what do you mean too short? A lot short? of the Oregon. Cl- oh, uh, 
like you you couldn't throw it on a wheel if you know like it, it almost acts like sand you know you just get it wet and it just it doesn't hold its shape it's not plastic you know gotcha okay um that that goes that 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 comes from the microstructure of the of the of the mineral um clay is kind of like a plate like structure mm -hmm. um with little charges in between that keep it kind of sticky uh but it doesn't have to be that way some clays are not not very malleable but um, luckily, Oregon clay, at least the the kinds I've been playing with, um, they kind of work right out of the ground, which isn't which is amazing. It's amazing luck. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I would love to if I had more time, <laughs> drive around and with a pickaxe just take samples and play around. But I'm happy with the clay I have. Uh, I, I'll have to send you you know samples of some of the pots I've been making. But it has a, a unique warm character. Uh, it, it seems unique. You know, even it, it's different from Yixing clay. It's different from other clays I've seen in in the, in the United States. I, I, I think it's kind of cool. Now, you you said that it, it, clay, the clay is is a byproduct of basalt breaking down. Is that is that specifically basalt, and is that what gave rise to the clay that exists in Tokonami and the clay that exists in Yixing and some of these other places? Uh, uh so. Most minerals come from, you know, the the earth uh, as as like lava. Sure. Um, if you were to take uh, lava or, or or basalt and grind it up and fire it in a kiln, uh, it would make a really terrible pot. the The balance of minerals is not correct. It's it's very low in alumina. It's low in silica, and it has a whole bunch of um, sort of foreign uh, chemical components that make it worthless for for pottery. Um, so. In in order to get the the composition right, the balance, it, it takes eons of weathering, right? So the water will dissolve the basalt, and in that dissolving, it'll separate it into areas, pockets where there's more alumina, you know, pockets where there's more iron, and then it washes away all these other uh, components that would screw with the the pottery effort. So uh, I don't know specifically what happens in in Tokonami. I haven't researched. Um, but ultimately, yeah, most mi minerals are from the weathering of something. It could be granite. Uh, there's a lot of granite in the Wallawas um, that I want to go check out next. Mm -hmm. um, to, to make a to make a good clay, you got to blend it. Um, right now, I'm blending like 10% feldspar from California, but I would love to use an Oregon feldspar, and feldspar is found where granite is. Mm. So that's kind of my next goal. Um, yeah, I, I I I really get off on the <laughs> the, the 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 chemistry aspect. It's really so exciting. cool, I do too. I, I appreciate your knowledge of the geology and the the process by which these unique pockets uh, come to fruition. You know, like you, you can compare it to the characteristics that a tree has. You know, in a, in a specific environment, if you take a Rocky Mountain juniper, there's Rocky Mountain Junipers, Junipers scopulorum, but yet, you know, you go from one ridge to another in the Rocky Mountains and the foliar type changes and the characteristics of the trees change. And you say, well, what happened here? And there was a tree that had characteristics that could tolerate the conditions better. So it was longer lasting and it reproduced. And consequently, its offspring 
some of them had that same genetic expression and they carried forward that and that's what over the course of thousands of years created that characteristic mm -hmm. in that region right and it, it, and it is fascinating like that time scale in the world of bonsai i don't think a lot of people think about the clay body of ceramics in the way that you're describing it right now and i'm so happy that we're having this conversation because it is fascinating to me what does the silica do the, the silica is uh it, it's like a glass window is mostly silica right mm -hmm. it, it it's the primary kind of backbone for the the clay um it kind of melts together everything it, it creates other compounds when it's fired um they people call it the bones of the the pot um you, you need a, enough silica to kind of melt everything together and it's not really melting it's centering so um you know you, you take these particles and you you kind of gently melt the surfaces of the particles together you're not um it's not melting into a homogeneous mixture they're kind of barely touching each other they mm. they, they shrink by like 10 percent but so, yeah you, you need you need yeah go ahead so what is the cone now 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 i officially <laughs> feel prepared for the cone discussion how does yeah, the cone yeah. influence this process um yeah so the, the the cone is just a way to measure uh, how much heat you've put into something it's it's like saying do you want your your steak medium well or or rare done, rare or something like that um but 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 you know the the temperature you cook your steak it depends on the cut of the steak right uh, you you wouldn't cut a very thin cook a, a very thin steak at the same temperature you would cook a very uh, thick steak, um, so that's where the the cones come in. Um, it's a way of of controlling how much heat you put into something. Um, and so, like uh, one clay might mature and be frostproof at cone six, and another clay might be mature at cone ten. Um, so so. To say that a pot should be cone 10 doesn't quite make sense because it's 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 certainly possible to make a frost proof pot at cone six. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a question I get all the time. Do you do you fire at cone 10? And you know, I try to explain that it doesn't really matter. I you can make a, a clay that'll be frost proof at cone one or or something much lower. Um, I think I think people people use the cone as a as a way of protecting against frost proofing correctly, but and um, and what does it mean to have a, a clay mature, quote unquote, mature at at cone six or cone ten, fully vitrify? Is that what that means? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, whether or not it absorbs water, basically, how much percentage of water does it absorb? Uh -huh. And and that goes back to that centering, like how many, how much air pockets are left between those particles. If it's not fully mature, then you have these large gaping air pockets. Um, Someone was over at my house and they were asking me, "Is there a, is there an easy way to test if a pot is mature?" And you know, there's the there's the knocking on it to hear the ringing, and that that certainly works. The ringing, you know, it's related to how dense the clay is. Um, if it's if it's very porous, then it's going to be thuddy, right? Uh, another way is to lick it, so you can turn the pot over and you can <laughs> put your tongue on it. So if it's very porous, it'll it'll pour it'll kind of pull water away from your tongue, and it'll feel really dry. Um, when I was doing a lot of clay testing, that was something I did early on, just lick it and you kind of get a, you get a rough feeling for where it's at. And so that's how, you know, a lot of those, those, those old non-vons we were talking about, they're, they're actually pretty low fired. They have that kind of study feel to it. 
but they have been they have persevered in winter temperatures and frost for a prolonged period of time is that because of the coarse nature and the groggy characteristic of the clay that was used for that yeah yeah it, it definitely could be could also be the shape of it it's very you know convex so mm-hmm. that that kind of helps as well mm-hmm. and and i'm not saying they're all low fired I, i've seen a lot of antique chinese pots that are uh, pretty high fired they're not stupid they know they've had winners um yeah so but i've also seen a lot of Kochi pots that are cracked that have like you know this the sort of spalling on the rim where the where the the glaze peels off and i've i've seen plenty of those mm-hmm. yeah yeah i've seen that too well so so let me ask you then if you if you have a a a, a vessel that's fully vitrified right and and you're saying now cone six cone 10 depends on the clay to be frost proof frost proof container is there is there mineral exchange is there water exchange and is there uh air or oxygen exchange between the root system and, and, and the wall of the container I, I i imagine there's some finite amount of of um erosion that happens but it's going to be minuscule mm-hmm. uh, just think it, it took eons to take a piece of basalt down to a, a, a powder you know in, in a in our lifetime nothing will happen been nothing noticeable so I, I i've been tinkering around with uh, porous glazes lately uh I, I had this conversation with andrew earlier earlier this week andrew robson mm. um we were we were lamenting how it's difficult to to quickly create a patina on a on a kochi pot right um and i you know i kind of have theories about how that happens a lot of people do but um i i think a lot of those were low fired and so uh, the glaze surface is very kind of porous, um, and so it breaks down pretty quickly. And I think, you know, our fertilizers and our waters get in there, and um, a modern pot fired to modern standards may not ever develop that sort of patina. You kind of have to, back to that Namvan discussion, you kind of have to make mistakes. You kind of have to do a crappy job of glaze formulations, maybe. So I'm playing around with yeah. that. Yeah, that's interesting. I, but I think it, it makes me think even of like, okay, well, if you're talking about modern standards, so you're talking about just use tokoname as an example, uh, and a Yamaki pot is being fired to what I would I would assume is modern standards. I don't know that for sure. I have no idea what they fire to or what their clay characteristics are. I just know that it's become a reference for accessible production pottery Yamaki tends to be something that people look at and say, yeah, it's pretty good, especially if, if you get some of their older clays. Um, but they will accumulate patina over the course of time. And so what, what, what causes, I, I mean, obviously it's mineral content, obviously from fertilizers, water, because when you cultivate a tree in a container, patina accumulates faster than if you just leave that pot sitting outside, right? But, but what is patina? And, and, and my, this question comes from, I'll never forget, uh, Mr. Kimura was, was away one morning. I was in my sixth year uh, as an apprentice. I got a phone call from the younger apprentices. Uh, I, had, I had come, I was still in my, at my apartment a little bit tardy because I knew Mr. Kimura wasn't going to be there. And, uh, and they said, you need to come quick. So I, you know, I got ready. I went to the garden. And, um, and one of the younger apprentices was hauling a coke fruit tree in its antique Chinese pot back to the back of the garden, and it fell off the daisha. And, uh, and the pot shattered, and it was just sitting on the ground there. And they said, what do we do? 
you know, and so I called Mr. Kimura and that was a whole ordeal. He came back. It was a nightmare. But but uh, he, he said, throw this pot away. And instead of throwing it away, I, I kept it and I still have it. Um, it's in like 50 pieces. But when I, <laughs> when I look at the cross section of that pot that is filled with patina, the cross section of that pot shows a, a very dark core to the clay body. The clay is not homogeneously colored once you get past the exterior surface of the vessel. The interior core of the clay is a different color than the, than the clay closest yeah. to the external surface. And I look yeah. at that and I say, for as much as a ceramicist wants to argue with me about the fact that a cone tin fired vitrified clay does not engage with mineral exchange, it, 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 unless I'm m misunderstanding what's happening here, it seems to me that patina takes time to accumulate. And if I'm looking at this pot and seeing what I think I'm seeing, it, it seems to come from the core, which means accumulation from the core and then expression on the surface over the course of time. But I don't know if I'm totally misreading that. <laughs> You're dead wrong. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Good. That's, yeah. This is great yeah. because yeah. I want to know. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting that you, that you had that experience. Um, uh, so it was uh, black on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's called uh, carbon coring. Mm -hmm. um, so when a clay has all these organic compounds in it, it's not it's not pure chemistry. It's got um, organic stuff in it. Uh, and and usually a, a a pot is fired twice. It's it's fired at, at a bisque temperature. Uh, and which is at oxidation usually, and and then later you apply glaze and fire it at a at a glaze temperature. That'll be that final cone ten or whatever. Um, but uh, some of that carbon doesn't actually get burnt out. It's stuck inside the inside of the pot. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's inevitable, and I think it's very difficult to avoid. So especially if you're using iron containing bodies like the the pot you you're talking about pro, uh, probably was right it was the yeah unglazed I, pot yeah it was un, it was unglazed and it was like a it it was like kind of a deeper reddish brown that had a that had that yeah. black core mhm mm so it would have iron in it yeah yeah um and that's actually uh, you know technically a flaw because it does weaken the structure that having that carbon in there mhm mm um, and, and depending on how you do that final firing, if it's a reduction or oxidation, uh, it tends to get worse with the reduction. Uh, so, and that does weaken it. So, but it's inevitable. I think that's normal, but I don't think that has anything to do with the patina. No. Okay. I, I have good. I, my, I have pots that explode because I didn't formulate the clay correctly and it'll be black in the center. That's, mm -hmm. that's pretty typical. And I think there's still, you know, go ahead. I, I think there's different th different theories about carbon coring, so I could be dead wrong also. So <laughs> you have a higher likelihood of being right than I do. Let's just establish <laughs> that, right? Like, uh, but 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 I mean, obviously the reduction oxidation can apply to wood fired too, and the antique Chinese pots for the most part were wood wood fired to the to the best of my understanding, at least uh, up to a certain point, right? Until modern firing gas and electric became more accessible and, and widely utilized. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it would have to be. So this pot was that old. Mm -hmm. It was. You think it was wood-fired? Wow. No, I know it was wood-fired, yeah. I know it was wow. wood-fired. That's incredible. Yeah, so it's like but a 200-year-old yeah, pot. To be, 
Yeah, I see. Um, yeah, I mean, wood tends to fire in a neutral to re reducing atmosphere. It's just the nature of what fire is. It's going to pull the oxygens from your glaze, from your clay. That's that's what creates those nice iron colors. And is um, that is that what's going to leave that carbon in the core then? It, it it makes it it can make it worse because it's the oxygens that are that are burning out that carbon. They're they're gonna they're gonna bond with that carbon and make CO two. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're already in a reducing atmosphere, then it's gonna be difficult to find enough oxygen to to have that happen, right? You're mm -hmm. gonna have these carbons stranded there. Interesting. And what you're saying is that that actually compromises the structure of the clay. Yeah, yeah. Because I have, I also have, say, like a gyozon, like a, you know, a custom gyozon pot, not custom for anything I had, but it was a custom pot that some of those make it back into circulation. And, uh, and for one reason or another, maybe a superficial hairline crack in it, cold winter in Japan, whole pot breaks in half. Mr. Kamura says, I can't use this anymore. And I'm like, I'll take it, you know? So like, I take it back to my yeah. apartment. I bring it, bring it home with me when I come back and I, and I, and I reassembled it, basically patched it. But seeing the cross section of that, there was no black in the core. I see. Th this was what, what kind of pot? This is a gyozon. Gyozon, okay. gyozon pot, gyozon's probably, he's probably like the, the, he's still, still uh, living. But I would say, you know, as far as Japanese ceramicists are concerned, and this is obviously very much a, a subjective conversation, but I would say Gyozan's the most highly regarded, currently living, practicing Japanese bonsai ceramicist. I would say Shuzan, you know, is deceased and has like this sort of next level of, of reverence in Japan, but Gyozan is kind of currently the creme de la creme. Yeah, I don't know what specific potters do. I, I know that for a lot of production tokenami where they, they tend to fire at a lower temperature over a, a longer time period. Mm. And, and a lot of them also fire electric. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the glaze effects you can only achieve in, a, in an oxidation firing, for example. Um, and it makes sense for what they're doing. Uh, if you fire at a lower temp, you get less warpage. It generally, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more stable. It, it, it can cost less, although the way they're doing it may not. Um, the general trend of pottery today is to try to fire at lower temperatures. Hmm. And that's something I, I probably should be doing is firing at lower temperatures. I still fire at a cone 10 because that's the way I was taught. But I, I recognize that I'll never be able to achieve a perfectly uh, you know, uniform pot if I keep doing it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very hard to prevent warps at cone 10. Interesting. Um, that, that, that goes back to that, that densification, the, the, the vitrification. Um, now it's shrinking. Now it's, it's you know, when when you make a pot, it's got all this internal stress, and so when you when you when you fire it, that's get that gets relieved. So it's possible on that pot you were talking about, the one of the crack, that it had some like crazy internal stresses. That all it took was that one crack, and then bam, it's kind of like a like a windshield, you know. This is like, but this is where it's such a, a Jedi. This is like a Jedi practice at, at some point because you're talking about a knowledge of so many different factors that go into the making of a bonsai pot. And when somebody looks at it and they say, oh, that's a rectangular bonsai pot, that must be simple or basic. And it's like, oh, no, 
Oh, no. Like the clay, where it came from, what you're talking about with the chemistry, the way that it's made, uh, dried, fired, and fired a second time, the temperature, the length, the reduction, the oxidation. Like it, it, it becomes so complex. It's like, you know, my brain wants to break. But it's fun, isn't it? I, I, it's For really you, interesting. Well, but... this is where you are you and I am I. You know, this is... <laughs> Uh, th- this is fun for you. And that's, that's why you're gonna, that's why you're, 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 uh, you know, are on the path to becoming just a absolutely spectacular ceramicist is, uh, the curiosity has struck you. I, I talk with Jonathan Cross a lot, who's a ceramicist that we work with that does a lot of wood fire out in the desert in Joshua tree in Southern California. And he, he also has a studio, um, in Santa Monica that he works out of um, where he can't wood fire. So he's been trying to replicate some of the wood fired aesthetics with gas. And, and that's been a really interesting to watch him experiment. But, you know, he, 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 when he's driving up here delivering work to us, he's looking at all the road cuts and the geology and like thinking about all of the mineral content and all. And, and it is, it is really interesting to talk with him about it and get into the mind of a ceramicist that's going as deep as you guys are going. I mean, for you to go harvest your own clay and go through what you went through uh, to be able to utilize that and, and to have a desire to do that, I, I think d- does add in the effort an intangible quality to your work. I think it's amazing. Oh, thanks. I, you know, I, and I'm just imitating and following in the footsteps of thousands of years of, of potters. I think uh, at the end of the day, it's just tinkering around and trial and error. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 I look back and uh, I respect the uh, Chinese people who discovered this because even we, we touched on it a, a little at the beginning, but you know, all Japanese potters are really just imitating Chinese potters. Mm-hmm. And, and by extension, all Western potters are imitating Chinese potters. Mm-hmm. And all these techniques I'm talking about, of reduction of oxidation, of clay blending, of making molds, the Chinese invented this and they did it 3,000 years ago. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I love reading about the, the amazing intelligence of these Chinese potters and, and what they accomplished. Yeah, China. Yeah, China. China is next level. Uh, I took a, I took a Chinese history and philosophy class in college, and and it and it kind of blew my mind. Uh, just going through all of the different, you know, Song Tong dynasties and and the history and the evolution of technology and maritime navigation and, um, you know, Genghis and Kublai Khan really, really squashed what, what was a, a culture that had reached a very high level of technology equivalent to what we saw, you know, in like the 18, late 1800s and the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Like China was there, uh, 11, 1200, uh, you know, AD. So it's, it is interesting and, and to handle these ceramics and recognize how influential they've been on bonsai culture, although you know, I guess when they were making these in China, they were they were facilitating the exploration or, or practice of pinging or, you know, like, because it's not bonsai that they were making these ceramics for, right? Bonsai is a Japanese uh, approach to uh, representation of nature and miniaturized trees, uh, to the best of my knowledge as I understand it. And that might be a bastardized explanation, but in China, that was not what it was, Right. Yeah, and I, I'm kind of fuzzy on that. Uh, I can tell you that they made other objects that 
uh, interacted with nature, like water basins and flower vases and you know the 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 sort of principles there of of bringing nature inside. He'd set up the suiban or the you know the precursor to a suiban and arrange the flowers inside, and maybe that evolved into into bonsai. Mm-hmm. Or ikebana potentially. Or well, ikebana. But yeah. I but you've studied tea ceremony, um, and and the culture of tea, and it, this is also an offshoot of of China, correct? Yeah, yeah, and and so I mean, looking at looking at tea and and the you said the pursuit in in uh, Tokoname of, of of these tea vessels is is just sorry uh, the 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 pursuit of the creation of these tea vessels is basically just copying you, you know like was tea treated the same in China. Was their intention to have it be a ceremonious thing or was it just like this was an everyday thing and these vessels were the same as the non-bonds? They were like, look, we need teacups. That's it. And this is what they look yeah. like when we pump out 200 a day. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm not a China, China expert, but I, I know that in Japan, it's, it's a very Japanese thing, the, the, the chano yu, you know, sen no rikyu, uh, right. sen determining no that this is the correct way to to pour tea and make tea and serve tea and enjoy tea. Yeah. And I don't know that the Chinese took it to that level, although they do have their own version of, of tea ceremony, right? They have um, what's oolong cha. They make those crazy tables with the little cups, and then they have a crazy system of pouring oolong cha. That's that kind of brownish tea. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know how far back that goes. And, and before tea, it was wine vessels. So I don't know... Uh, exactly their relationship with tea today but. Mm. yeah very interesting interesting to see how we've gotten where we are now interesting to see uh how the western world interprets all of this as well you know i think that i think that's a fascinating sort of uh, mixture and confluence of 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 worldly perspectives on this singular pursuit and the accoutrements that go into making it happen and obviously the ceramic vessel as far as bonsai and the definition of bonsai is concerned is a gigantic part it's what makes it something different than a tree in a pot you know mm-hmm. yeah i i think the common thread is is the pursuit of beauty that um if, if you if you think about what the tea ceremony was and, and where that came from um it, it was the the zen kind of philosophy of of no mind you know of of, of existing and of having nature do its thing. And, uh, you know, I think today if we make pots with no mind, if we just, just shut up and make a pot, it'll be beautiful. And, you know, if you let nature do its, have its course on your tree, you know, if you, if you try to force something it, it, that doesn't belong, it'll be obvious, it'll be ugly. The same is true for pots. You know, if if you try to work a crazy surface in that, It'll just look like you worked a crazy surface and by hand, you know, the truth will out. I think uh, if we're if we're in the business of making uh, beautiful objects, whether it's a, a bonsai pot or a tree, uh, I think we can look back at sort of the, the, the true Zen philosophy of, of of shut up and enjoy life. <laughs> I, I, I'm in, man. I'm in. Uh, it's been really, it's been a real pleasure to get to talk to you now. I mean, I really enjoyed my visit to your, your space. I've really 
valued getting to work with your ceramics. Um, and I, and I can't wait to see where you go with it. I, I, uh, I'm a hundred percent, you know, in support of what you're doing in your endeavor and uh, super psyched that I, that I have some trees in your pots here at Mirai now. So, um, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us and, uh, keep me, keep, keep me in the loop when you fire <laughs> again, cause I want to see what you make. All right. Thank you. Anytime. Yeah. Very good. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll catch up again soon, but, but for real, uh, keep me in the loop and, uh, I wish you all the best in your adventures and fatherhood, uh, you know, make it a living and, uh, <laughs> and pursuing ceramics in the meantime. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. All right, man. Take care. Take care. Bye.